0: Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you.
1: Six, six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level Low power, frequency, radio... Welcome
0: to A Public Affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel is Wisconsin's largest and most influential newspaper and renowned as one of the strongest regional daily newspapers in the U.S. Over its storied history, the paper's reporters have won many awards, including the Pulitzer Prize and the National Magazine Award for Feature Writing. And despite the challenges of the newspaper industry's consolidation and declining subscriptions, the paper has continued to produce local investigative reporting that has led to impactful changes in the communities it serves. How does the Journal Sentinel do this? What's the continuing role of local journalism? How is the paper covering growing complex issues in the region, such as education, racial inequities, and the climate crisis? How does the paper navigate contentious public debates about objectivity in journalism and the partisanship of the public sphere? Here to address these questions and more is Milwaukee Journal Sentinel executive editor Greg Borofsky. Greg is a native of Milwaukee and has worked as a journalist at the paper for 25 years. He was named the new executive editor this past February. Welcome to A Public Affair, Greg.
1: Yeah, Thanks for having me.
0: We're really glad to have you with us today to talk about journalism today. Welcome listeners. We'd love for you to join our conversation. If you have a question for Milwaukee Journal Center Executive Editor Greg Borofsky or would like to share a story about what newspapers mean to you, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension nine. We'd love to have you join the conversation today. So, Greg, uh, we're going to start today with your personal involvement in the newspaper business, which goes way back, and then we'll move into some of those larger questions that I mentioned at the top. Um, Your history with the newspaper business started long before you started writing for newspapers. Um, Tell us about the paper's role in your childhood and what ways that might have helped you connect with the, the notion of a newspaper.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, my first job, like a lot of folks out there, was as a newspaper carrier. And I had a, a Sentinel route, which was the morning paper before the, the merger with the journal, which was the afternoon paper. And our so our family became a Sentinel family. My grandmother lived a few blocks away and they got the journal there. So we'd always, growing up, be reading you know one or the other. And it was sort of a, a part of the a fixture in the family in terms of you know the old, you know, fight over who's got the green sheet and you know who's reading the sports page and whatnot. But so around, I guess, for about twelve, I think you could start a, a a sentinel route at that time. It's hard to believe today that because we don't send twelve-year-olds out, you know, delivering delivering the newspaper. Um, but it was a different world back then, and my brother and I had we got each got a route. We kind of walk down different sides of the street to deliver the 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 newspapers about halfway through the route we 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 grew up in the river west neighborhood in in milwaukee and we got to nino's bakery on the corner of clark and wheel street and would always except on mondays when they were closed we didn't (laughs) like delivering mondays because we'd always stop and get a get a, a donut and a chocolate milk or something and then finish the route but but it was you know a big part of the uh, growing up, having the job, you know, you'd have to go in those days collect, uh, you collected the money in person. So you'd go around on Saturday afternoons to try to collect, you know, from each of your customers. It's still one of those things when people talk about about stress dreams and things that you were, you know, when you have those common dreams that come up. And I, mine is sometimes, not that I have trouble sleeping generally, but um, you know, it's that I'm on the paper route and I've forgotten which houses get the paper and I'm running down the block and, you know, trying to remember, does it go on the porch or does it not? And all that kind of stuff.
0: So it stayed with you, it sounds like, very much, yeah. that, no. that early experience. And then no. um, would you say there was a connection there from that kind of family interest in newspapers to uh, leading to your own work as a journalist or studying journalism and then going to work as a journalist early on? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there was another particular event for us, for my family that, that helped drive me to become a reporter. Um, so I mean, I was always interested in writing and high school was, you know, worked for the student paper and the yearbook and all that kind of stuff. I didn't really envision it as a career initially, but I, my brothers and I were in, in the mid-1980s were students at Mesmer High School in Milwaukee, which was the, at the time, the only naturally integrated high school in the city. There wasn't any busing involved. It was a a private Catholic school, which was owned and operated by the Archdiocese, and in 1984, uh, February, the Archdiocese decided they were going to close the school. I was a a junior at the time. I had one brother who was a senior and one was a freshman, and a group of parents, including my own, got together and formed what became known as the Save Mustmer Committee. And these were just average folks. You know, they weren't power brokers, particularly well connected or anything, but said this, we're going to fight to keep the school open. And they were successful, but in large part they were successful because the story resonated with the community and the story in terms of the newspapers at the time and the local TV stations you know were covering it and kept it in in the forefront and for it was a made a real impression on me in that you know here's a way to make a difference in the community not by you know the reporters weren't advocates they weren't you know editorializing this is what should happen they were simply giving voice to a group of parents and students that otherwise might have, been ignored or forgotten and in doing so elevated that that story and our, our situation and our request to purchase the building and reopen the school. So that it made a real, you know, profound difference in terms of, you know, thinking about what you can do in a career in journalism simply by by telling stories that that need to be told
0: and then you went on to do just that of course um you worked as a reporter for 25 years at the journal sentinel um you wrote an article just this past august after 25 years at the journal sentinel here's what i can tell you about our future and in this piece you tell the story of your first assignment at the paper and and what it taught you um let's jump into that those early reporting years and then again we'll we'll move the picture out more broad
1: sure yeah i actually started i had before I came back home to the Journal Center, I, I worked in Indiana at a small paper in, in Marion, Indiana, for about three years, and then Lansing, Michigan, covering state government for just about six. And was excited to come back to Milwaukee to cover cover City Hall. And the the first assignment I had um, was in the Lincoln Park neighborhood, one of the kind of the nor- northwest side of Milwaukee, and they were experiencing some. Flooding when with, around Lincoln Creek, um, and you know whenever there'd be heavy rains, there'd be flooding. It hit people's basements, and it was becoming intolerable for the residents who were pushing for you know, some changes with the sewerage district. So I went out to a news conference that the um, the neighborhood um, organization was having to call attention to it, and afterwards, of course, introduced myself to the to the alderman who was alderman Marvin Pratt at the time. Um, later became council president and then acting mayor. And now and then the the neighborhood the president of the neighbor group was Al Holmes. Who, so I walked up, introduced myself, and he looks at me, he says, "Say that name again." So I, I repeated my name, and then he says, "Who's your dad?" So I give him my dad's name, Leonard, and he's like. I haven't seen you since you were this tall. And he puts his hand like around his waist because he used to be, he grew up or had, used to live in R- river West when I was growing up and he knew my parents and had been engaged on, you know, neighborhood um, committees and groups and things like that. So it just, it, it showed me the, you know, for a first assignment coming home, you think you're going from a smaller paper to the big city and it's like Milwaukee can be a real, real small place. If you've, um, and which is one of its virtues but you had you know and then it was always cool in those earlier years especially to have people hear from people you maybe went to high school with or other places from your past you would see your byline in the paper or see that you were working for the newspaper and reach out this is you know before the dawn of facebook and all those sorts of things so it was a good opportunity to really reconnect with the with the community
0: You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with Milwaukee Journal Sentinel Executive Editor Greg Borowski. If you have a question for Greg or a story to share about what newspapers mean to you, what uh, you are wondering about the current state of journalism and how journalists do their work, this is a great time. To have an opportunity to have those questions answered or share that story, give us a call at 608 256 2001, extension 9, to talk with Milwaukee Journal Sentinel executive editor Greg Borowski. So, uh, as we are saying, 25 years at the Journal Sentinel to this path of becoming executive editor, you have seen newspaper journalism both change and stay the same a lot over 25 years, I imagine. Mm-hmm talk to us a little bit about how it has both changed and stayed the same in that quarter century
1: yeah well the the change is, is you know fundamental i mean when I started I, I tell younger reporters this all the time that you know we and, and readers too I and mean, we could deliver news to you in one way it was you know words on paper um at you know 5 a.m or so whenever it landed on your doorstep and that was allowed us to focus on a few things, you know, the written word and good visual journalism. And really, you know, if, if you didn't have to, if you had all day to tell the story, and you know, even if something broke in the morning, um, you could spend all day telling it. I always, my fellow reporters and I are looking back, we, we spent so much time just almost wasting time and that we, you know, something would happen at noon and we wouldn't maybe not follow that story till eight o'clock at night or something like that. And we, um, polish it and have it that, you know, one opportunity to tell, tell readers what was happening. Um, now it's not even just readers that we're trying to reach, trying to reach viewers who are watching our videos and listening to, you know, audio reports and engaging people in chats and other ways. So, with the internet and the availability of, you know, the device, if your iPhone or, you know, your, 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 cell phone at, at your hand, we can reach people all day through basically any medium. We can show you a video right away. We can be instantly telling you what's happening via, you know, tweets and um, posts on social media. You know, you can turn on a Packers game on, on, on Sunday and, get into a, a live chat with our reporter who's sitting at Lambeau field. So there's just so many, many more ways to, to engage with us and for us to um, to send and distribute information. Um, it it's, it's just a fundamentally different, you know, dynamic than it was. It puts us on our toes in that, you know, to hire a reporter today, I need somebody who can, uh is familiar with you know audio and video and all these different elements he's adept at social media um you know in the old day to go back to the, the sentinel and the journal analogy the sentinel was the morning paper and was a little more newsy than the the journal it was a little scrappier and you'd get you know as best you could the breaking news and developing news that morning and the sentinel the journal on its deadlines would have time usually to sit back and provide more of an enterprise look ahead look or a deeper look and dive into the nuances of the story. So our reporters today, if you're a Journal Sentinel reporter, you've got to first write that Sentinel story, which is you know the urgency of what's happening in the moment and get it posted quickly. You probably have tweeted it, that event as it's going on. But once you've written that story of the basics of the news, you have to turn around and write a story that has, you know, depth and context and perspective. And that's writing the journal story, so to speak. And that is what hopefully is what winds up in your newspaper the next morning. And so it's you're really doing two and three jobs as you were doing before. Um, You're also doing it under much more. Uh, scrutiny, um, maybe not more scrutiny, but this, those who are giving you scrutiny have the ability to just tweet at you and email you and criticize you in the moment. Um, and and in, in this age of sort of vitriol and division in the country, we're kind of sometimes are targeted. So it's a lot harder for reporters to do their job. I would say the things that haven't changed are, I mean, fundamentally people in this business want to tell a story. They love getting out there and getting information and turning around and sharing it with readers, viewers, listeners, um, whatever the, the the platform is. And to be able to tell it quickly and in, in an engaging manner is still, you know, vital, vital skill. Um, anybody who gets a scoop still loves to get the scoop. Anybody who does a big project that exposes a problem or writes a wrong, you allows to get that the same way they did before. It's just that the you know the tools are much different and the dynamics around it are much different.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to build on that a little bit. What you were just talking about there in terms of the storytelling skills remaining the same. And uh, relating to people is so important for journalists as well and uh, asking good questions. Um for all the talk, which you framed really well about the ways that different forms of media and reaching an audience have changed uh, the whole nature of the job, um, what about those kind of core ways of relating to people has remained kind of steady or central to what a, a journalist does?
1: Oh, well, for definitely it's things like, I mean, you have to be able to approach strangers, <laughs> ask them to tell their story. Sometimes we're amazed at the stories people are willing to, to share with us. Um, you have to be, um, you know, come at folks with a humble attitude. No one's required to talk to us. Um, you know, to come at people in a, a manner and approach them, where help them understand what we're doing and be very, um, open and upfront about here's the type of story we're trying to write here's why we're talking to you here's what you could bring to the story you know we spend a lot of time as we always did with uh, sources or subjects if there's a particularly sensitive topic just to make sure they understand that um, you know what you say may have ramifications out there that you may be making an allegation about something or or even just telling something that happened to you can these days, especially create more, you know, more blowback and things that that in the past just weren't things to think about. I mean, it's like in the past, when I was starting out, I can't remember any cases where someone was like a a subject of a story would find out later and say, well, my gosh, why did you read this? Now I'm getting harassed or annoyed or whatever. But now people will look up, might look up a source on social media and, and, you know, tweet at them or about them. And it's, it's a lot of that, you know, part is, you know, makes it more of a a challenge to, to navigate um, our way through. Of course, a lot of the people we talk with are, are people are familiar with working with the media. A lot of times it's, you know, uh, you know, politicians, policymakers, business leaders, civic leaders, um, companies that have a paid spokesperson to get their story out. And I think, by and large, though most reporters, you know, love to get past those gatekeepers and past the the rhetoric to be able to say who's really affected by this and who's. You know, who's a story about a what we sometimes call a real person. You know, not not the one who's paid to, to talk to us. And you know, that's still a. It's a bit more challenging sometimes, but it's something that reporters really like to do and to get to to tell those stories of individuals that are making a difference or or have something to say.
0: A lot of what uh, you were just talking about resonates with what many of the journalists I've talked to over the past year or so on this show have emphasized, which is the importance of sharing the process of journalism with the public. Um, many journalists, including um, your own colleague there, Raquel Rutledge, who I had on uh, a few months back, really talked about uh, how important that is that people understand what journalists do and, and why they do it. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about that and maybe how, as a, a, an organization, you all are, are collaborating and working on that? there at the journal sentinel
1: yeah um first i mean we've been making efforts i think a lot of institutions and newsrooms are around you know greater transparency for the our readers to know kind of why we're doing something you know why is that you know like a lot of people if you said in this day and age you know if you're using an anonymous source some people might be suspicious that the source even exists, you know, so we would say here's, we want to say if we're using someone who's unnamed in a story that we explain in the story why we're um, using them what level of knowledge they may have, you know, maybe it's for retribution, they're afraid of retribution or, or whatever it is. So we want to be more transparent and upfront with readers around things like that. So they understand what we're doing and how journalism is different than much of what they might encounter these days because you know the the great the internet has had tremendous benefits but it has a lot of things that you have to be on the guard against and one of those things is you know unverified information so the benefit is you know anybody at any moment can tell their story to the world and we've all seen things like you know issues of say um uh, police encounters that went awry, that were caught on social media, or people, you know, you know, broadcasting things from there or telling their story in their own words in an unfiltered way that literally, you know, technically and strictly speaking, anybody in the world could, you could reach anybody, you could reach everybody. At the same t- token, those tools can be used by bad actors, can be used by people who have a, a particular you know, angle or point of view that they're less interested in getting the truth out there as much as they are, you know, persuading you to take a certain view or who knows to maybe trying to get you, get your attention so they can, you know, get you on board and steal your credit card information. There's all kinds of stuff going on out there that you have to be be wary of. And the, the, the challenge is, you know, that we've got to help people understand that when you're coming to us and to our platforms, you're coming, you're getting verified information. We can't just, we heard some things, we can't just, you know, repeat it. We're going to try to confirm it. We're going to go to multiple sources to try to confirm it. We're going to seek original records to confirm it. We're going to seek out other points of view on that story to include that it's, it's a different thing. So I think that's that's one of the reasons it's more important now to be be transparent and explain what we do because you know, is in sort of the quote unquote old days, you know, news would be what you know you saw in your local newspaper or on the TV station or the radio station. And of course that was there were gatekeepers to that and it maybe you weren't telling all the stories. But today if if people say, Well, news is what you've seen in your in your Twitter feed or your Facebook feed or your Instagram feed. Well, now you're seeing a whole mishmash of stuff. And some of it's going to be from news organizations that are carefully vetting their information and, and providing it. Some is going to just be from, you know, partisan groups that have a point of view. Some will be from, you know, you know, Fake accounts and whatever else. So it's hard. How, how do you, as a consumer, distinguish what you see in that feed or in that news that's coming to your attention? And we want to be sure that when people see our name on it and our logo and our information, that they understand what they're getting and that, that we can that we're standing behind it. And here's what we did to get the information and why, you know, you should you know, feel more comfortable in in trusting that information.
0: That's Milwaukee Journal Sentinel Executive Editor Greg Borowski. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking with Greg Borowski today about the milwaukee journal sentinel his own history in journalism and the issues facing newspapers today if you have a question for greg or a story to share about what newspapers mean to you some comments or uh insights about the work of newspaper journalism please do give us a call at 608-256-2001 extension 9. um you were just talking about uh the role of newspapers in this climate of um, having all these various, uh, sometimes unverified sources of information out there. And one of your initiatives at the Journal Sentinel that I know you've been involved in is PolitiFact. Um, Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about the origins of PolitiFact and uh, what you hope it's accomplishing, what what its role is in the journalism world here in Wisconsin in particular today.
1: Sure. Yeah, that's when I was just thinking about PolitiFact, we were talking about verification and sources, because one of the things that we do with PolitiFact Wisconsin and the national site does as well is we don't use anonymous sources in in those items and we link to original documents and we kind of quote unquote show our work. So if you don't, you know, if you disagree with the rating that we came up with at the end, you still know how we how we got there. So PolitiFact itself began in 2008 through the Tampa Bay. It was the St. Petersburg uh, Times at at the time. Now it's the Tampa Bay Times. Um, But they launched it because the founder, Bill Adair, in um, 2004, had been at a a political convention. He was a political reporter and he was listening to one of the speakers. And as the speaker talked, he, he, he was just saying to himself, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. And that all, all this information was being sent out over the airwaves um, that he just knew to be inaccurate, or, or to have, um, you know, not fully explained or only a partial aspect of the story. So he went back and worked with his team there, and they they launched this in in 2008 um, with the idea that they want to um, help. Readers and voters understand what what they're hearing. So they did that. They want a Pulitzer Prize for it. Um, we got on board in 2010 as a um, as a local uh, affiliate. Um, so we use the same protocols and procedures that they do. We've rated now almost 2,000 items since then. We got a, a very busy start because if if you um, think about that fall of 2010 and then that the, was when Scott Walker was elected governor and in the early uh, 2011 was act 10 and all sorts of things but so we've we've done a whole host of items the, the mission for our reporters is to go out there to take a specific claim uh, try to look at it and hold it up to the the rating scale um, I always tell people that who sometimes they worry more about the rating like well I think that's you know, mostly false and not half true or whatever is, you know, you know, don't worry about the rating as much as the information that you're getting because the information that you're getting can, can provide a lot of great insight to you about the issue because we'll walk you through, here's what the person said, here's the evidence they're offering. Here's where that evidence might, might fall short. Here's where it's, um, you know, here's where they're solid. And we always rate according to the same definitions so that, you know, we try to be consistent internally and, if, and across the network of PolitiFact sites. But it's, it's, when we started off and the national site did, there weren't a whole lot of places doing it. I mean, the Washington Post started somewhere in there and the New York Times now has variations and everybody's doing it. Um, when we started off, it, you know, it wasn't nearly as it is today to be able to try to fact check in, in real time, but sometimes that has its own dangers of trying to make a, a rash judgment. We've had a lot of ones we've rated where, where you think of, you go in thinking, oh yeah, that's probably false, and it turns out it's, it's mostly true, and that's really what we're trying to help, help readers understand.
0: One of the things I really appreciate about it is, is what you were just describing. You're inviting readers into that process of uh, gathering information to verify or, in some cases, debunk a, a statement, right? And it's another demonstration of that process that you were talking about earlier of inviting the public into seeing how journalists go about verifying information, how they, how they do their work. And I think it just prevents, or presents another... Angle on that for readers uh, in the political realm. Yeah,
1: that's what we're really trying to do: is arm people with more information that will help them. And you know, we list. Not only do we not use anonymous sources, and we try to find original documents. We list with every item online who we interviewed, what stories we looked at, what reports we studied. We always try to get to things like. Is there a, a gold standard source on it, such as the uh, the, the legislative um, uh, fiscal bureau, which may be scoring it for Republicans and Democrats alike, and and they or groups that have a, a very neutral, you know, standing to help the reader, you know, understand it in in the end. I mean, it's. I think it's makes a difference if you're a, a voter who genuinely wants to be informed. I think if you're a voter who is so dug in on a particular point of view, almost whatever we write is probably not gonna, you know, change your, your point of view. And we recognize you know, in politics, there's gonna be strategies and, and so forth. I remember one of the, early on, we had the um, a, one, a U.S. Senate race and, and someone who was backing one of the candidates said, we did an item and we rated the claim being made against them as false or pants on fire. And I got a call like a a couple of days later, they're like, well, you need to do it again. I said, what do you mean you need to do it again? He says, well, they're still doing it. They're still saying it. And I, I said, well, you know, I can't, I can't be next to everybody whenever they see a TV ad and tell them, um, you know, here's why where it's falls short, uh, nor can I be in their house over breakfast, reading them the item each time they see a story but we can put it out in the world and hopefully people who are looking for good information will find it through you know searches and other things to to come across it so in that respect it's done its job has it stopped people from saying false things I mean of course not there's so many elements at play of you know why someone might might keep making a claim (laughs) And, and and you know the only way ultimately for that to bring more uh, you know in terms of politics is to have the real consequence that you know if voters reject someone who's making a lot of false claims, well, that's the consequence. And maybe over time it it steers the needle you know a little more toward the the true side of what people are hearing. Mm-hmm.
0: I'd like to steer our conversation a little bit more into the many impacts. On local communities that uh, local journalism and regional journalism um, has and in particular there at the Journal Sentinel um, obviously as as newspaper staffs have shrunk in recent years around the country local news coverage has undoubtedly shrunk as well in places uh, let's start with how you've tried to mitigate those kinds of impacts there at the Journal Sentinel how you've tried to maintain strong local investigative news coverage and maybe some of your proudest moments in that realm.
1: Yeah, well, first, I mean, it'd be crazy to say it hasn't affected us, the shrinking of, of a, the staff. And when I started, there were probably, um, you know, I imagine the newsroom had twice as many reporters as we do now. I I tend to think and to urge our staff to view it as let's look at what we have right now as opposed to what we used to have, um, because, we've got a lot now we're the biggest newsroom in the state we've got about 100 journalists in our newsroom when you talk about our sister properties in green bay and appleton and was on other places you know that's probably another 50 reporters so if you told me you know I, in the abstract community and said i'd like you to create a news organization in wisconsin that and we'll give you about 150 journalists and we want you to cover this the state and these and these 11 communities as best you can a lot of people would love to have that many many people it's not a small you know number of people i say that mindful that any if any reporters are hearing this will be like yeah but i mean it was easier before sure when there was a lot more people but we've we've got a lot and we've got to zero in on what we can do with what we have so within that I mean, you make a lot of decisions around um, investigative reporting, bigger projects. What can we, what can we tackle? And we try to do things like let's be really smart about where we're going to invest the resources. So really think about an idea. So before we say, Oh yeah, go, go spend eight or 10 months on this story. I want to have a clear memo from the reporters based on some initial reporting to kind of help me understand, okay, what, is there? What are we likely to find? Have we done some legwork to know this is a good spot to to dig? Um, We've been able to keep many of our veteran reporters. We've got people who've been at this paper several, several, probably a dozen or longer than I have. So we've got some people who've been doing this for a long time. We've got super talented individuals. We've kept up the size of our investigative team. We've kept people on on key beats. Um, that said, the other way we try to mitigate it is through things like partnering up with other um, institutions that will help us, you know, fund some of our reporting. And that is a whole menu of different ways we can do that. You know, one, for instance, is we've been working with um, Marquette University um, through what's called the O'Brien Fellowship, which takes a reporter every academic year. The Journal Sentinel has a permanent slot there. So it's basically a reporter for nine months. We know you're going to be able to dig in on a big topic and come back with it. We've got similar relationships with other institutions. We'll partner up with other news organizations where it's appropriate. So we've got more you know muscle to it. We've done things like Report for America where some of that funding comes through Report for America and has allowed us, for instance, to add uh, two reporters around the environment. One is uh, Maddie Heim, who's covering the Mississippi River Basin and general environmental stories, and Caitlin Luby, who's covering environmental stories and the Great Lakes, which was a beat that um, if any of your listeners are familiar with, Dan Egan, who wrote a couple of brilliant books around uh, the Great Lakes and environmental issues, that's a it and an important one, so we figured out how we're going to, you know, we kind of lost it when Dan uh, became a best-selling author and (laughs) decided to leave, Um, but we've got it back, so we're always looking for ways like that to say, you know, can we add more, you know, more resources where where they're most needed.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, To build on that, are there any particular... Uh, stories or investigative kinds of efforts that you'd really like to highlight here, in addition that have already happened, that you feel like demonstrate all the ways that you just mentioned. Uh, you're trying to keep that that work a real strength of what you do there at the Journal Sentinel.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll mention two because they're real recent and and top of mind for us. I mean, one, I wouldn't label it in an investigation as much as a really good explanatory piece that. Maddie and Caitlin and Frank Vasvilis, who um, covers native issues for us, did around climate change, and specifically, you know what could we learn if we listened better to uh, native tribes and their ancestral wisdom around things that would help mitigate the the effects of of climate change, And that those three reporters, um, two are currently in Report for America. Frank used to be, and he's now full time on our, our regular staff. You know, dug in and really told some compelling stories that were, you know, put a very different uh, framework on that topic. It was one that, you know, when they came with, with the idea right away, you could tell that there's something different here. It wasn't mm-hmm. sort of a, a conventional climate change story, it was, there's a twist of something only we could tell that others weren't, weren't sharing. So that's a, a great example of, you know, using those resources to help, you know, b- build quality journalism, give them some time. You know, we got a grant for that through the, the Pointer Institute, uh, which had came to the, from the Joyce Foundation of the Pointer Institute to us, but um, it allowed them some extra ability to travel around the state and get out and talk to people. Um, Another one I'll mention is one that John Diedrich did. Uh, He still has another installment coming in about a week and a half, I think, through what's called the O'Brien Fellowship at Marquette. I just had mentioned that, and that's a program where visiting journalists come to Marquette's College of Communication and work with student journalists as assistants and get the academic year to Go deep on a topic and John's stories are about um, uh, gun deaths in Wisconsin and he was able to because he had the time and resources uh, to do it he could uh, do a couple things we started off trying to figure out well what is the true the sort of the big question we're trying to answer is what is the true picture of gun deaths in Wisconsin um, and not you know, just through the lens of homicide, which puts a very Milwaukee focus on it. But if you look, if you add in suicide Mm -hmm. and accidental deaths and things like that, it shows that, you know, guns and gun safety are a much bigger issue across the state than people probably um, even imagined. And he, we set out, initially we thought we'd get access to a state database on every, because they track every gun death in the state. Um, there is a specific provision in the law that said we couldn't have that database. So we said, look, we're gonna go to all 72 counties and try to get it ourselves. And we got it, you know, 71 out of 72 counties, we got information on on gun deaths in those those counties. So it's the most complete picture that anyone has ever had or explored. And it's allowed John to you know, really build up his knowledge around that, and to really show better what the picture is, and hopefully that'll have you know some impact on debates and discussions around anything from uh, you know gun safety measures to suicide prevention measures to to whatever else. But his mission there was to come at it and and just try to answer that question: you know, what is the true picture of of gun gun deaths in the state and what are we can we learn from it and so he's you know done a lot of uh, interviews out and about on that and I think it's bringing a deeper understanding to it probably than we've ever ever had that we wouldn't have been able to do and that is the kind of reporting where you, you mentioned earlier in some of the the Pulitzer Prizes and things we won and I was an editor on a lot of those those projects I put that work up against any of them. It's just as good as work from 10 years ago or 20 years ago, and we're still doing it because we've got that commitment to get it done, and we'll we'll always find a way to do it.
0: You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. Madison, I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with Milwaukee Journal Sentinel Executive Editor Greg Borowski. If you have a question for Greg or a story to share about what newspapers mean to you, what you'd like to see happening in uh, newspapers or covered in newspapers these days, there's still time to give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. So I'd love to cover in the time we have left, Greg, a few more specific Issues. Um, You just started with a couple of wonderful examples there talking about um, issues that you're prioritizing covering there at the Journal Sentinel. And, And there are a few that are important on this program, but also obviously important to many, many people in Wisconsin that I'd like to touch on and just get your take on. Uh, how journalism broadly is evolving and how you all there at the Journal Sentinel are working on these issues. And one of them is, uh, we'll start with climate, since you just mentioned that, um, and and this novel, at least in mainstream journalism novel, take kind of that um, your series on Native uh, wisdom and Native approaches to dealing with the climate crisis Um has come out there from the journal sentinel but um i wanted to get your take on this issue of wisconsin and milwaukee in particular sometimes being described as a so-called climate haven yet somehow or nonetheless there there are all kinds of significant challenges obviously in a place like milwaukee excessive heat is a big one but um uh flooding uh major rain events, how do you see coverage of the ways the climate crisis impacts the region kind of evolving and and how do you go about prioritizing this? Many journalists i 've had on this show have talked about how they've we've had to kind of reset from thinking about climate as its own beat um to really seeing how it is spread out through through all the areas that reporters think about
1: yeah, I mean that last point is a good one um and we it applies to a whole bunch of things you know, public sure safety, different issues that are across all the different beats so what what we've done is and my thought is always okay if if it's everybody's job it's nobody's job but you also don't want it to be strictly one person's job you're covering us so you need sort of that balance and we've got you know the team that we've got around it um uh, maddie and and caitlin especially caitlin came to us she's a She has a PhD in 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 climatology, for instance. So she's she's she knows her stuff, you know. Um, And um, so we're putting you know some expertise on it and some real focus on it, with the idea that you know you you can't just write the occasional story. You have to look for ways to partner up with other reporters, how it affects different beats, different things. I mean, it's sort of and it it goes in in the same sense of like if you say, okay, yes, we we may be based on our geography and, and other factors, we may be in a better position than many parts of the world. That doesn't mean we're not affected. And you have to sort of be able to tell that story from that vantage point of, okay, what are the impacts here in, in the state? What is it gonna mean for uh, the, the issues and points you mentioned, but also things like you know, future, uh, you know, future population mm-hmm. growth, Potentially, you know, demands on Great Lakes water, all kinds of different, different things that are, are there. So that's where it does affect so many different beats, from local government, planning kind of things to, you know, what's happening around, you know, forest fires to, you know, whatever the, the issue is. To to be mindful of that, so you can provide it with with context and not be like gee whiz we've got all these many more forest fires without being able to help explain you know why they're why they're occurring Mm
0: -hmm. i'm gonna throw another real big one at you here greg that i know we could talk a long time about but i think i'll actually merge them together education and wisconsin's persistent racial inequities um education being one manifestation of racial inequities of course there are many but i'd just love to hear you talk a little bit about the the challenges of covering both of these, and and what you see as some of the paper's successes in doing so?
1: Yeah, I, I think there's some areas we've been very successful and some areas that we've got, got work to do. If you look at our, our projects over the years, our big ticket investigations and explanatory projects, we've tackled so many things from, you know, problems with education and kids, you know, moving from school to school. And we've looked at, you know, bad landlords and a whole host of issues that, you know, get at these these inequities, you know, very often, you know, that, you know, writing stories and exposing inequities help drive many of our reporters. So we're going to do those stories. I don't think we've done as well in connecting with, with communities that you know, often it, it gets described as, as underserved communities. And I will say, I, I don't like that phrasing in part because it sort of puts the onus on the community. It's like, why are you underserved? Are you just, you know, not interesting enough or something, but it also just, when you type it out, I always have to stop and make sure I'm not typing undeserved and I'm typing underserved because they look so similar. And in my view, the way to help prevent underserved communities is to get out and serve those communities and get out and listen to people that maybe we weren't listening to, um, to before and to tell those stories from the, from the ground up rather than looking at it and saying, Hey, I've noticed this big gap in test scores. Let's try to get at what's behind it. Um, or I've noticed a lot of, um, uh, let's say in milwaukee reckless driving is a big issue right now we've noticed an increase in these deaths what's going on to be able to get out into the communities and neighborhoods and talk to people build stronger relationships where we're recovering stories with them and not just about them and to tell uh stories that will help these issues bubble up a little bit more you know we can we've done great job telling stories about you know bad landlords and we just had one last week about a, a mega corporation. I think, it, I think it's the biggest in Milwaukee in terms of properties owned. And they're facing financial problems and what the questions are, what might come of them if they have to start selling off properties and so on. I always tell our reporters, you know, that's great, but, you know, for the policymakers and the people to try to make a difference, if you live in one of these properties and you wind up about to be evicted or someone else buys it or they're not repairing the property what you want is something different probably you want to see the change and someone be held accountable of course but you also want to know I'm about to be evicted Um, what am I where can I go who can help me what rights do I have as a tenant is there uh, resources I can go to if I can't afford an attorney and so on. So we were trying to write those pieces as well. Um, And sometimes those are pieces of information more so than stories. You know, it's like, how do we help you um, access government services or know your rights and things like that? So that's an area I think we've, we've been making progress, but still need, need to do better at.
0: I want to build on something you just said, Greg, about um, writing stories with communities that are too little heard from rather than about those communities. Um, and this relates to one way uh, journalism has been trying to do that is to diversify newsrooms, diversify the the people included in, in telling the stories, right? Um, and there's been an ongoing discussion about how this, including more perspectives, more diverse backgrounds, whether they're racial, socioeconomic, et cetera, may complicate traditional notions of objectivity. this, flared up um, recently when New York Times Magazine writer Jasmine Hughes, who was forced to resign over a signing of an open letter of Writers Against the War in Gaza, recently said something on Democracy Now. I think that objectivity is a wonderful, beautiful project for a world that does not exist. Um, that's one critique of the notion of objectivity. There are lots of others out there, um, but uh, we don't have a, a lot of time left, but maybe your, your notion of how uh, diversifying newsrooms and complicating notions of objectivity is is coming together right now and and what you try how you try to talk with your reporters about this
1: yeah I mean we've tried in a couple different ways I mean first we're we've been working and continue to work to get you know bring more diversity to our newsroom on the staff I think the more points of view and the more back different backgrounds people have and different life experiences the better you are it, it, it would, it'd be sort of Anti-journalism in a way—if you didn't support greater diversity, because that's that's more information, that's more insights, it's going to make you a stronger um, institution and be able to do to do better work. Um, so we've really pushed forward on that, and we'll continue to do that. I mean, it is there's a big discussion out there about objectivity and things, and and like you said, it can't all be covered. <laughs> here. But I do, I would say that, I mean, what we do, and this goes back to distinguishing from other entities that are out there and people just tweeting or partisan websites or other things is, is we're going to do our best to tell the full story. And the best we can do that is to talk to as many people as possible. And we may fall short at times. And when we do, we have this great thing, we get to go back and write another story, or we get to add a correction to our story if we made a factual error. And we will keep working toward that to provide a more complete picture. Often people will look at it and say, well, well, yeah, but that particular story didn't say this. And the answer is, well, right, but we've got six other stories on that topic. And over time, we'll be do better at getting toward the, you know, whatever the full on, you know, the truth is or that, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, that full picture, but you can't in a 15 paragraph story tell every piece of information. So you're going to pick off what you can in that piece. And sometimes people see that and think it's bias when it's just the practicalities of telling a story Mm -hmm. in the, in the moment facing a deadline.
0: Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there today, Greg, but I'm so glad we got to cover a lot of territory. Uh, It's been a real pleasure talking with you. This is uh, Milwaukee Journal Sentinel Executive Editor Greg Borowski. Thanks again for joining us, Greg.
1: All right. You're welcome. Anytime
0: and thank you listeners for joining us as well here on A Public Affair WORT 89.9 FM Madison my name is Douglas Haynes if you have appreciated the program today please do find it wherever you find your podcasts I'd like to thank today's engineer Andrew Thomas producer Jade Iseri Ramos and news director Shali Pittman thanks again listeners for joining us on WRT 89.9 FM Madison stay tuned for Madison Bookbeat on today's show UW Madison Professor Stephen Canterwitz talks about his new book, Citizens of a Stolen Land, A Ho-Chunk History of the 19th Century United States.
1: ¶¶¶¶